she also has this kind of empathy with animals that that makes her a kind of character yeah, who that's communicate. Not great. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. Only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is Darcy Little Badger, a Lipan Apache Earth scientist with a PhD in oceanography. She is the author of the new YA fantasy novel Elat Soe, an indie bestseller, among other work, including comics. Darcy is here to chat with me today about Danny Moonstar, the Cheyenne superheroine Mirage, and she is writing that character, a longtime fan favorite, in the upcoming Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices one-shot publishing next month. Darcy, thank you so much for being my guest. How are you today? Oh, thank you for having me. I'm doing pretty good, as good as can be expected. (laughs) Right. It's a weird time. I feel like I, I always open with that question. Everyone's just like, um you know, been better. Yeah. Um, I'm surviving. Yeah, exactly. So just a couple quick notes this week before we get started. First, my father, 60s X-Men connoisseur that he is, felt very strongly that I should amend my recommendation for the 60s stories from last episode. Rather than starting with issue 55, he insists that anyone interested in that period start with issue 49, which is the first appearance of Lorna Dane. I think that's probably right, because then you get Lorna and Alex introduced before they become sort of part of the book. And my apologies for leading you astray. Second, a correction. Last week, I referred to Cable 76 as the first time Cable had ever spoken to his biological mother, Madeline Pryor. I realized right after reporting that I was actually combining two issues in my head. Their first interaction is actually in Cable 44, which ties in with all her stuff in the Nate Gray X-Man book. But 76 is the good one that Jay and I were talking about, and you don't really need to read 44, especially if you don't read X-Man, because it's a little confusing without that context. Finally, Hungarian listener Sabolcsnaz offered some insight on the name of Nightcrawler's adoptive family, which I tried to figure out how to pronounce back in episode two. I went with Sardosh, and he says I got the consonants right, but the vowels were a little bit off. So for the record, Margali and Jemaine's last name should be pronounced a bit closer to Sardosh. It was like a schwa sound there at the end. But I was very proud of myself for figuring out those consonants because they are not how we would say them in English. With that out of the way, let's get to Moonstar. Darcy, I'd love to talk about your history first with the character, who is one of the classic New Mutants and a character that I've always really liked. I know you've loved her since you were a kid. What's your backstory with Danny? So when I received a call from the editor, uh, Sarah Brunstad, of this Indigenous Voices issue, at the time, I didn't know who they wanted me to write, but I knew who I wanted to write, and that was Danny. So I brought with me like this five-page list of reasons why I would be such an excellent writer for Danny Moonstar. And really, it's I didn't even need to do that. I was just like, can I write Danny? And, and, and she was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> but um, for me, she's one of those X-Men characters that I've always really enjoyed reading. And I did get started reading comics as a child, but I really started with the X-Men when I was a junior high student. And my father and mother, they're teachers, but teachers don't make a lot of money. So they'd work summers in this village store in Vermont. And in this village store, there was this rack of comics. And I would go help them at night, like uh, restock, put things away. And then I'd sit there and start reading and I'd read X-Men comics. And that really 
got me into this universe. And with Danny, I actually started by reading her very early appearance um, in like the 80s. So I like started from the beginning, even mm-hmm. though that was, you know, she, she was like around in the early 80s before I was born. But I am really familiar with her, you know, her origin on um, these new mutants. And so it was it was really wonderful for me to have a chance to write this character that I've grown up really loving and also identifying with because, you know, for, for better or worse, um, she's a native character in the X-Men universe. And, you know, so, sometimes there are some stereotypes and, and things involved with, right. with her. But for me, I, I actually saw a lot of myself in her and, you know, I, I really loved her. <laughs> it must be amazing to be, as far as I know, the first Native American writer to get your hands on this character. Because as you point out, there are several indigenous characters in sort of the X-Men universe. I mean, Thunderbird was not great. And then Danny and Thunderbird's brother Warpath were sort of better. It was sort of the two of them and Forge in the 80s who were introduced and who are more complicated and less sort of stereotypical. But there are, of course, I mean, they were created by white people and there's going to be stuff. So what's been most exciting to you about that experience, about bringing that insight to the character? So I really love Danny's powers in particular because I'm a fan of horror and I'm, you know, a little bit goth these days. Used to be more so when I was younger. And just this ability to kind of understand this internal landscape of a person and to project these mirages that can reflect like their greatest fear if you'd like to. And then of course she has like this death power that is brought on by her involvement as a Valkyrie. Valkyrie Yeah. Yeah. So just, she as a character is really cool, but there is that also that element where she is a Cheyenne woman and that culture is very important to her, which you see right from the beginning. Like uh, she makes it clear from the beginning um, that she is not going to, give up her culture just to be, you know, training as a mutant with Charles Xavier. Uh, so I do sometimes when reading her as, as a fan, I would think things like, you know, how would she reconcile this thing that she's doing with her culture as a Cheyenne? Like uh, people often contrast her, her work, you know, as a Valkyrie, which is this is Edgardian, like Norse type figure with European mythology. Yeah, European thing, mythology. Yeah. And actually, within the comics, she she asks that question herself. I'm, I I believe mm-hmm. yes, it, it, it's that episode where she's returning home um, with Brightwind, and she is like thinking to herself, you know, I I feel like pulled in these different directions, and and when I was writing Danny, I just wanted to portray her as a human with multitudes, like she can be many things, mm-hmm. and at this point, I think in her story, she's come to terms with that. Um, so that's what I was really excited about writing for uh, this 10-page story that I'm doing with her. Yeah, I think that what you point out about her cultural specificity is really true and important. And it is something that from the very beginning, she's very defiant about. Mm-hmm. Like, she won't just wear the New Mutants uniform. She adds elements to it that are from her more traditional garb because mm-hmm. she wants to feel connected to her culture. And when we first talked about your work on the book, you pointed out something that had not occurred to me as a white person reading this character, but there's a very loaded history of (laughs) Native children going to boarding school or being sent to boarding school. So the mere fact of her going to Xavier's Mm -hmm. is something that draws on a very painful history. Yeah. 
And it's interesting that from the beginning, she, whether Claremont intended this or not, tacitly acknowledges that by refusing to wear just their clothes, you know? Yes, exactly. And and that's something that I picked up right away. And, and like you say, I, I don't know if this was Claremont's intention, but it happened. Um, Danny has this resistance initially to going to a boarding school. Uh, I think she calls Charles like a white man or something. I can't remember specifically, but um, <laughs> it, it was not flattering. Um, and to me, what that really, what I recalled is just this history of boarding schools used by the United States in order to essentially, quote unquote, kill the Indian, save the man. So it was a tool of cultural assimilation right. that really across the country, even even Lipan Apache people, my people, uh, we don't have much of a boarding school history, but there have been Lipan children who were taken away and they actually had a tragic end. So this is something that's very painful and something that I know that Danny mm-hmm. would be aware of and maybe afraid of. So is she going to this boarding school? Are they going to try to make her assimilate? And I, I do right. feel that a lot of her direct pushback, like, no, I'm, I, I will wear this uniform, but I'm also going to add like this belt because this is my culture and I'm not going to give that back. You know, right, I'm going to wear these boots. Yeah, and, right. Yeah, yeah, and, and it's it's almost like her just uh, exerting that individuality that's important to her, and saying, you know, th- this is not going to be a kill the Indian, save the man situation. I'm going to continue to be Danny Moonstar, Cheyenne woman, but I'm also going to work with you and learn how to control my mutant powers. You know. Well, and I think that what you say about fear is important because that's sort of the theme of her character, right? It's why I don't really want to talk about the New Mutants movie, but (laughs) the idea of making the New Mutants movie a horror movie was not that out there because the sort of iconic early story is the demon bear story, which centers around Danny and centers around her power over fears and desires. And all of the Bill Sienkiewicz art on that is scary and wonderful and and beautiful and one of the things I like most about her and and part of why I'm really glad she has her powers back which we'll get into because there was a long period where she didn't have her powers after the decimation Mm -hmm. I've always been a fan of when the psychic characters have limitations placed on them like Jean Grey is cool and does cool things but she can kind of do everything psychic Whereas I think it's interesting that like Emma Frost and Xavier are not telekinetic. And that was also the case with Psylocke in the stories that I liked best with Psylocke in sort of the 80s and early 90s. And I especially like when it's sort of hyper specific. So Mirage is a psychic character. Her initial codename is Psyche even. But she is only really able to read what you want and what you don't want and then manifest those as illusions which is a really cool take on on a telepathic power, I think, and is also on some level a way to tie her a little bit to, I mean, the other guests and I have talked about this on the podcast before, Claremont often, he was very interested in diversifying the cast, but he definitely drew on sort of cult, pop cultural archetypes. Mm-hmm. I mean, Danny is sort of a literal dream catcher, right? Like that's kind of what she does. <laughs> Like, it's a way of having her be sort of a mystical Native American character without literally having her be, like, a sorceress Mm -hmm. or, like, a medicine woman. It's like Storm in some ways, where it's, like, it reflects the indigenous religion that he's drawing on and particularly the pop culture portrayal of that indigenous religion, but it's not so literal. Yeah, and I have to say, 
she also has this kind of empathy with animals that that makes her a kind of character yeah, who that's communicate. Not great. <laughs> yeah, in terms of you, know, you get a lot of uh, if if you not just in comics but also in fantasy in general. It, often when you have a uh, native character with powers, it tends to have something to do with animals. You know, I love animals. I'm a biologist. Close to nature. But, yeah, very nature and like, spiritual. Anyway. Uh, there, there is that, and and that's one reason I do think it's it's really cool where she eventually does, you know, have these on again, off again Valkyrie powers, especially that death sense. Yeah, it almost expands her repertoire beyond these stereotypes associated with native women. Yeah, I do agree that these limitations. I find her most interesting when she has that limitations because there have been some moments when her powers have been expanded. Like in one case, I, I, oh yeah, yeah she was and, like doing reality work. Yes. <laughs> It was a bit. It was. It was just too too much for me. Um, I, I do find it more interesting when you really have to think. How do I adapt this specific power for this unique situation? Right. It makes her more interesting as a character who can participate in the plot. To me, mm-hmm. and the New Mutants were very good about this as a lineup. Karma is another one where she's not quite a telepath in the regular way. Like she has a very specific situational power and like cannonball has about the most specific situational power you could have. This got a little downplayed later on because magic and magma kind of had a lot of tricks up their sleeve. But in terms of the initial characters, it was very much like each of these teenagers has a very specific weird power, a lot like Kitty pride. Mm -hmm. And you have to shape the story around what they can do which is always kind of a fun way to approach a superhero story, in my opinion. I do think that the Valkyrie thing, which we'll get into in more detail in the Cerebro character file, um, (laughs) because that is probably the most confusing element of Danny's character history. I do think that in part, why, I mean, this is me like trying to read the writer's minds, and I don't think Claremont's ever been asked about this directly, but it was around the same time that Forge comes in. And I think that Forge, who is a Cheyenne mystic, who does do sort of Native American magic, has spent sort of his whole life running away from that and being obsessed with modern technology. And his mutant power is about being a scientist and an inventor. And that's sort of his character issue. And because of his power and the nature of his role in the story, he's the least stereotypical Native character introduced up to that point. And around the same time, shortly after he's introduced, because it's when Storm has no powers, which is Forge's initial function in the book, you have Danny go to Asgard and this Valkyrie thing happens. And it feels to me like an attempt to add a layer that's a little more complicated than the initial magical Native American girl who makes illusions and talks to animals which is cool but is also a little bit on the nose insofar as a native american superhero goes you know what i mean yeah i have to say a disclaimer so i'm lip on apache and i'm writing in in danny's character a cheyenne woman who Clearly, our cultures are very different. Um, so I am no expert in any way on spirituality or traditions of, of Danny. But I do suspect that uh, a lot of it is... I think neither was Chris Claremont. Yeah, that, so. that's what I was going to say. So definitely don't go to the X-Men, especially the older issues, if you want to learn about 
the reality of of these beliefs. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what role the demon bear plays in traditional uh, Cheyenne spirituality. Uh, I'm not confident yeah, that I'm, that's a real. I'm pretty thing. sure a, a lot of it was just um, invented. <laughs> so. Yeah, you know what's what's interesting actually is there are sort of two tribes that these characters tend to come from, and and the proud stars Thunderbird and Warpath are Apache. Mm-hmm. Danny and Forge are Cheyenne. I don't think that. Danny and Forge ever talk about that on panel, as far as I can remember, at least in the 80s. Like, I can't, I'm, I'm having trouble thinking of a time when they ever interacted. But I guess those are just two tribes that Claremont found interesting, to whatever extent he researched this. That is part of why I think the Valkyrie thing is interesting, and particularly after the decimation, when she lost her powers, the only way certain writers could find to bring her back into the mix was to reemphasize the Valkyrie thing, which had been written out in the 90s. For a while, that was sort of her dominant mode. I mean, she was in that book, Fearless Defenders, with Valkyrie, the main Valkyrie character, and her ties with Hela have always been interesting. We'll get to this later because there's a Mm -hmm. fan question about it. I'm Uh not like super 100% certain of her current Valkyrie status. And I think that's probably something because Mm -hmm. everyone in the X room right now is very much like a continuity head. I'm sure that it will be addressed, but Mm -hmm. I would be interested to see more about like her having duties to Asgard versus duties to Krakoa in the same way that they're doing stuff with Betsy Braddock, having duties to Otherworld and duties to Krakoa, or the way that they're having sort of nationalist characters grapple with which nation they feel aligned with. And Danny always, for the most part, picks the mutants over the Valkyries, but there have been times when she chose to stay in Asgard rather than (laughs) return. So I think that that would be interesting to explore more. That actually might be a good time to go into the character file because this is a character, while her history is not as long as, I mean, last week we did Cyclops, <laughs> which is 57 years of publication. And this character is only thir- only 38 years yeah. of publication. <laughs> so, you know, it's not quite as, as long a history, but it is a very complicated history because different writers have had very different takes on her. So let's break for that, and then we'll come right back, and I want to talk to you about your favorite takes on the character and your favorite storylines. Cool. X-Men, X-Men. Daniel Moonstar, usually called Danny and sometimes known by the codename Mirage, is one of Marvel's most prominent Native American characters. A member of the Northern Cheyenne Nation, she is one of the original members of the New Mutants a new class of students at Xavier's School for Gifted Youngsters introduced by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud in September 1982's Marvel graphic novel number four, The New Mutants. Over the years, Danny has been a leader of that team, a Valkyrie of Asgard, an undercover agent of S.H.I.E.L.D. posing as a terrorist, and a beloved teacher at Xavier's. Her powers have shifted and changed over time, but her independent spirit and confident personality have helped her remain a fan-favorite character throughout various transformations. Like the other original New Mutants, Danny has a traumatic backstory. The reader first meets her in the Rocky Mountains, an orphan living in harmony with nature. Her grandfather Black Eagle, the mystic who raised her, comes to tell her he has contacted his old friend Charles Xavier, who can help Danny train in the use of her strange mutant gifts. Outraged, Danny refuses to leave her home to be taught by a white man, and in her anger she pulls Black Eagle's greatest fear forth from his mind, his own death, which he has foreseen in a mystical dream. Danny apologizes, and her grandfather explains that Xavier and Danny's late father were blood brothers. 
Danny agrees to meet with Xavier, but that night Black Eagle is murdered by agents of the Hellfire Club directed by Donald Pierce, a member of the Lord's Cardinal who has gone rogue. Danny swears vengeance, and when Xavier and his allies arrive to meet with her, they are thrust into battle with Pierce's agents. A Hellfire soldier murders Danny's pet mountain lion, Ridge Runner, but Moonstar herself is rescued by the Vietnamese mutant Karma, who is Xavier's student. Xavier prevents Danny from killing the soldier in revenge, and while she agrees to follow his rules for now, Danny insists that when they find Donald Pierce, his life will be hers to take. Danny accompanies Karma and Dr. Moira McTaggart to Brazil, where they recruit Roberto da Costa, who will be called Sunspot. Along with the rest of the New Mutants, Danny defeats Donald Pierce, ultimately making a snap decision to save the life of her new friend Rain Sinclair, codenamed Wolfsbane, instead of taking the opportunity to kill Pierce. Xavier remands Pierce to the custody of Tessa, Sebastian Shaw's personal aide, who takes him prisoner on behalf of the Hellfire Club. Back at Xavier's, Moonstar is given the codename Psyche. While the other students obediently don their new yellow and black standard uniforms, Danny accessorizes hers with a belt and a pair of boots she has brought from home. She is Cheyenne, and she refuses to abandon her heritage. Xavier, understanding that her unique perspective is part of what makes her strong, allows her alteration to the costume. Danny's powers are extremely difficult to control, and early in her time with the team, she accidentally shows all her classmates their leader Karma's worst memory, the murder of her mother by Thai pirates, who then raped Karma. Mortified by her accidental violation of Karma's privacy, Danny later panics when she's asked to complete a personalized danger room training course, and flees the school to hide it on the grounds of the estate. She reveals to Rain that when she was a child, she pulled a nightmare from her father's mind, in which a demonic bear slaughtered an eagle and a horse, symbolic representations of her parents, who were of those clans. Soon afterward, her parents disappeared, never to be seen again. After her powers also foretold the death of her grandfather, Danny has come to believe them a curse, and wishes she could be rid of them. Ashamed of her cowardice, Danny secretly returns to the danger room after the others have left, and is the first new mutant to successfully complete the course designed for her. After the apparent death of Karma in New Mutants number 6, which leaves the New Mutants devastated, Danny, now calling herself Mirage, and her teammate Sam Guthrie, codenamed Cannonball, become the new co-leaders of the team. Their adventures take them around the world, including to the secret land of Nova Roma, an ancient Roman colony in the Amazon rainforest. Don't worry about it. Where they do battle with the ancient mutant sorceress Selene and recruit new teammate Amara Aquila, codenamed Magma. Over the following months, the team also recruits Ilyana Rasputin, Magic, and Doug Ramsey, Cypher. The team develops a rivalry with the Hellions, the teenage mutants trained by the White Queen Emma Frost at the Hellfire Club's Massachusetts Academy. In the Demon Bear Saga, a 1984 storyline taking place over three issues from New Mutants 18 through 20, Danny is haunted once more by nightmares of the demon bear that killed her parents. In these issues, drawn in an avant-garde style by artist Bill Sienkiewicz, Danny challenges the evil spirit to a duel. She believes she has won, but the bear strikes her from behind, and she's nearly killed. While Danny is fighting for her life in the hospital, Magic manages to destroy the demon bear with her soul sword, revealing the demon bear is actually Danny's long-lost parents, who had been transformed by an evil entity and sent to capture Danny as well. The bear had been kept at bay by Black Eagle's magic, but when Danny's grandfather died, the evil was able to break through and pursue Danny. Though she's at first believed paralyzed, Danny recovers with the help of the Morlock called Healer. She's overjoyed to reunite with her parents, but wishes to remain at Xavier's school with her friends. 
Not long afterward, the New Mutants travel to Egypt to rescue Karma, who is actually alive and has been possessed by the evil telepath Amal Farouk, the Shadow King. In the aftermath, the team is kidnapped by Amora the Enchantress and as guardian goddess, and spirited away to Asgard. There Danny saves a winged horse from hunters. She names the horse Brightwind, and he chooses Danny as his rider, granting her the mantle and powers of a Valkyrie. Bestowed with a portion of the Odin power, Danny develops the ability to perceive death's mark on doomed people before they are killed. Brightwind returns with Danny to Earth, where she's disconcerted by Professor Xavier's departure for Shi'ar space, and the fact that a reformed Magneto is to be their new headmaster. When the cosmic being called the Beyonder murders and then resurrects the new mutants, they are left traumatized and nearly catatonic. Danny regains her sanity through a meeting with the Asgardian god Thor, but her teammates cannot be restored so easily. Magneto agrees to transfer them to the Massachusetts Academy, where Emma Frost may be able to use her telepathy to restore them. Angry about this decision, Danny storms out of the school and returns home to Colorado. There she uses her Valkyrie power to do battle with death itself when her childhood friend is mortally wounded. Danny defeats death, something seemingly impossible, but is ultimately convinced to allow her friend to die rather than spend eternity in a coma. Danny returns to Xavier's when her friends are restored through collaboration between Magneto and Emma Frost. With a truce formed between the school and the Hellfire Club, the New Mutants and the Hellions grow closer, and Danny forges a bond with the rival group's leader James Proudstar, an Apache mutant who has taken the codename Thunderbird in honor of his late brother, an X-Man who was killed in battle. Under new writer Louise Simonson, friction builds between the team and their headmaster Magneto, who becomes extremely protective and controlling after Cypher is killed by an anti-mutant extremist. Danny feels responsible for Cypher's death, but still resents Magneto's draconian rules, and joins the rest of the New Mutants in sneaking away to Nova Roma to rescue their former teammate Magma from the being called the High Evolutionary. During the battle, Danny is irradiated by one of the Evolutionary's machines, and her mutant power is amplified to allow her to create illusions with physical substance, but only one at a time. Eventually, the New Mutants abandon the school and Magneto entirely, merging with X-Factor's teen students, the X-Terminators. When the goddess Hela stages a coup in Asgard, she infects the Valkyries with demonic power. The new mutants are transported to Asgard, where Danny is fully consumed by evil energies and transformed into one of Hela's infernal servants. Hela tries to use Danny to assassinate Odin the Allfather, but Cannonball manages to stop the attempt, and Danny is restored to her normal self. In the aftermath, in 1990's New Mutants 87, Danny decides to leave the team and stay behind in a devastated Asgard to help the Valkyries rebuild. Danny returns in 1993's X-Force 27 by Fabian Nicesa. The members of X-Force, a paramilitary team composed of former members of the New Mutants and the X-Terminators, face off against their arch-nemeses, the terrorists called the Mutant Liberation Front, and are shocked to discover a masked woman named Moonstar among their number. Danny has fallen from Asgard and developed a new ability, the power to channel her psychic talent into devastating psionic arrows. Danny refuses to explain why she has become a supervillain, but still teams up with her old friends in X-Force on multiple occasions over the next several years. Eventually, it's revealed that she has been working undercover as an agent of S.H.I.E.L.D., and she joins X-Force after completing her mission. An encounter with the reality warper Arcadia DeVille transforms Danny on a molecular level, giving her power over quantum energy. Arcadia splits Danny into four different selves, the new mutant, the Valkyrie, the terrorist Moonstar, and the quantum-powered entity. But X-Force manages to reincorporate Danny's fragmented psyche, and she neutralizes Arcadia. 
In the aftermath, Danny is restored to her previous mutant power suite of emotional illusions, animal communication, and psionic arrows. During the six-month gap in 2000, Danny quits X-Force when she disagrees with their taking on a more amoral black ops direction. She becomes a part-time member of the X-Men and begins attending college. After the secret nature of Xavier's school is revealed to the world by the villain Cassandra Nova, Professor Xavier offers Danny a teaching position, which she's reluctant to accept, but she quickly bonds with a new squad of new mutants, becoming their mentor and training them alongside her old teammate Karma. When new student Josh Foley, codenamed Elixir, is rejected by his parents because he's a mutant, Danny decides to become his legal guardian. This makes it all the more distressing when her best friend Rain Sinclair, who has also taken a teaching position at their alma mater, has an inappropriate sexual relationship with Josh and is dismissed from the school. Soon afterward, the reality-warping Avenger called the Scarlet Witch, driven to madness, strikes out against her father Magneto by attempting to erase mutants from existence. Though she fails to completely eradicate mutant kind, what results is the 2006 event The Decimation, in which only about 200 mutants remain empowered, with the rest transformed into normal humans. Danny Moonstar is one of the unlucky masses to lose her mutant abilities, and while as a child she had seen her powers as a curse, now she is left reeling without them. Emma Frost, now co-headmistress at Xavier's with Cyclops, fires Danny from her teaching position and orders her to leave the school, now a target in the wake of the decimation, for her own safety. In 2007, Danny briefly takes a job with The Initiative, a government organization training legally registered superheroes, where she helps the young hero Trauma cope with powers similar to the ones she used to have. She's dismissed when her guidance makes it more difficult for The Initiative's leaders to turn Trauma into a weapon. Danny returns to her home in Colorado, where sometime later she's attacked by a group of Xavier students who've been tricked by her old enemy Donald Pierce. Cyclops convinces Danny to join her former teammate Sunspot in training this new team of so-called young X-Men, even without her powers, and she relocates to the island haven Utopia, where the remaining post-decimation mutants have settled. Cannonball reforms the original New Mutants team, and Danny proves herself worthy of rejoining the group by fighting him without her powers. When Norman Osborn attacks Utopia, Cyclops convinces Danny to go to the goddess Hela and make a deal. In exchange for a favor in the future, Hela makes Danny a Valkyrie once more, this time an order of magnitude more powerful than she was before. This makes Danny a match for the Olympian god Ares, one of Osborn's dark avengers. Danny would later repay her favor to Hela by fighting in the Siege of Asgard. As Hell's Valkyrie, Danny begins operating as a superhero again, and for a time joins the all-female team called the Fearless Defenders. Then comes Inhumans vs. X-Men, and if you're a loyal listener of Cerebro, I think you know the deal by now. In the 2019 soft reboot Dawn of X by Jonathan Hickman, Danny, whose mutant powers were finally restored in a storyline you don't really need to know about, emigrates to the new mutant sovereign nation on the living island Krakoa. Reunited with her old friends in the New Mutants, Danny settles into life in paradise, and is convinced by Sunspot to travel to Shi'ar space to visit Cannonball, who has moved there with his alien wife, the Imperial Guard member Smasher. Sunspot is confident he can get Cannonball to come back to Krakoa with them, but ultimately stays behind in Shi'ar space himself, while Danny and the others return to Earth without him and Sam. It's a new era for mutant kind, and Danny and the New Mutants are about to have a new writer. Vida Ayala, who will take over the book with artist Rod Rice this December. Over the years, this Cheyenne X-Man has vanished from the books with more frequency than most other classic characters, but she has never given up the good fight, and it's good to see her as a regular on the page once again. 
I'm eager to find out where her story takes her next. X-Men, X-Men. And we're back. We were just talking about how both of us felt like we had to revisit some of the stuff because I was like, I barely remember. She dated Nate Gray for a while. And Darcy said, yeah, they got fused. I was like, oh my God, their hands got fused one time. Yeah, that was horrifying. It wasn't a bad book by any means, but it was so long ago that I do feel like I I don't remember most of what happened. (laughs) What are your favorite storylines and sort of your favorite takes on this character? Because she has varied so much over the last 40 years. Uh, So I've been reading like the most recent New Mutants with her on Krakoa and like going off into space. And I have to say, I, I do really enjoy the energy of that because She's back with her her teammates. Um, you got with Spain, mm-hmm. and you know, they're all doing the banter. Uh, so I'm really looking forward to seeing how that develops. Um, I enjoyed the War of the Realms actually that featured the Uncanny X Men because Danny played such a, a mm-hmm. to me an important role in that, and really her I. Am I allowed to give spoilers on the on on the war of the Rings? Yes. Or oh yes. No. Everything. <laughs> everything is yes. Where this is a spoiler filled podcast. Oh, wonderful. <laughs> um, in in that the Valkyries were actually killed except for Danny, and she was the only only one who was brought in, and she and her friends were fighting this war. Um, and I think in the end, her her ability to see these shades of the dead kind of comes into play in in what my opinion was an emotionally impactful way uh so i enjoyed that oh yeah uh, i i enjoyed how like in the very early versions of danny when she was a teenager and she was just learning how to keep her powers under control she went through a lot of struggles i, I think emotionally and mentally at, w- at one point she wondered if she wouldn't be better off not existing and for me as a young reader, uh, I really identified with that. But also I, I kind of liked how strong she was in pushing back against mm-hmm. people who would try to sway her into things that she didn't want to do. So really, I, I, I appreciate a lot of different versions of Danny throughout the years. Uh, I'm interested to hear what your answer would be. Yeah. So my father, I talk about this every week, so apologies to the to the listeners. My father is an excellent collector and has been since the 60s. I was born in the late 80s. So when I was growing up in the 90s, the stuff that was coming out was just not my favorite. Mm-hmm. I just didn't enjoy it as much as the classic stuff, which I was reading because my dad had all of it. And so I got to love Danny in very specifically that period of the New Mutants, not the very first. I went back and read all of that with the Demon Bear and all of the incredible Bilson Cavachar. But the stuff a little bit later when Magneto is the headmaster. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Fall of the Mutants when Doug dies, which is like not my favorite. But the way that the characters spin out of that is really interesting. And... I did love the New Mutants and Asgard stuff. And I thought that Danny became really cool because I've always enjoyed the sort of mystical side of the Marvel Universe. And I was never a big Thor reader. So it was a nice kind of window into that stuff that I had never followed particularly through the lens of an X-Men character, which is the lens I always would prefer to explore any other corners of the Marvel Universe through. So I remember when she made the most impact on me, it was... When she, I mean, she and Cannonball are like the co-leaders of the team, but Sam definitely defers to her a lot of the time because she's very headstrong and he respects her opinion. 
And in Inferno, when she is really leading things and all of the insane stuff with Ilyana is happening that they don't really know what to do about. And the exterminators are showing up and there's all that drama with the babies that have been kidnapped to be sacrifices. That was the first time that, I mean, she'd used it before in stuff I had read, but that was when the death sense became really cool mm-hmm. to me, the Valkyrie death sense, because there's that moment, I think they're in a church and they're like trying to fight off the demons and Danny just looks around and she sees all of her friends mm-hmm. as like skeletons for a minute. And it's just like, oh, okay, that means shit is really bad. Yeah. Like the stakes are really, really high here. And the fact that she has to sit with that and, and she experiences it personally, but also communicates it to the reader, I think is a cool element to the character. I also really liked the costume that she put together around that time. <laughs> I don't know how accurate to like Cheyenne styles of clothing it is, but I thought that the fringe look was really cool. I liked when they got unique costumes that weren't just the yellow and, and black new mutants <laughs> uniforms. She just made an impact on me there. And what was a little frustrating was I I found myself thinking, especially because Ileana's dead there. And when I was, and then she becomes a child and then she dies again. And when I was a kid, she was dead for quite a while because they didn't bring her back as magic really until 2008 when I was in college. But the New Mutants character after magic that I was most interested in was Danny. Mm -hmm. And then when I went to the stuff that was coming out in the 90s, she wasn't part of the team because the New Mutants and the Exterminators had sort of merged together and then had become X-Force under Cable and Danny had stayed in Asgard. And I have to think, we kind of discussed this briefly when we talked the other day, but <laughs> it seems to me like a very deliberate choice to take Ilyana and Danny off the page before New Mutants transitions into X-Force because it's very hard to buy the idea of Danny following cable in the way that the others do yeah no i i I completely agree (laughs) with that (laughs) and this is kind of related to what you were saying earlier i was just thinking about her 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 costumes over the years as part of the x-men uh and Mm -hmm. generally so they wear costumes when talking about like traditional garb of native people say regalia but what she wears is not regalia right a lot of it i i think there's this is probably pretty common not just with comics but all over is is representations of native heroes or characters they tend to have like this pan-indian mixture of influences Mm -hmm. and and sometimes when i look at her i see things that are very reminiscent of like lip on apache styles like we have a lot of fringe on our clothing um and also the headband that she sometimes wears uh she doesn't always wear this but but often you see her with this like red headband and sometimes the way it's drawn it's pretty distinctive yeah, yeah. it's it's uh thick and it reminds me of an apache headband so like in my head canon i'm like oh well what if she uh she 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 knew uh the thunderbird or the proud star brother and right. what if you know they were friends maybe she saw them wearing this and they're like here here's your heaven i don't know if anyone if anyone knows the that origin. would be a really fun story yeah. for you to write actually because <laughs> like, actually notably the um the relationship between danny yeah. and warpath yeah there's a hint that it might turn into romance it doesn't yeah. ultimately but in the 80s stuff the Hellions and the New Mutants reach sort of a detente mm-hmm. because Danny bonds with the second Thunderbird. And since they're sort of the leaders of the two teams, 
they're just kind of like, and it's around the same time that Magneto and Emma Frost mm. are reaching kind of a detente as well. But it's an interesting evolution that's born specifically out of the two of them sort of seeing each other as native mutants and relating to one another on a level that they maybe don't necessarily relate to all of their teammates. Not that they don't relate to their teammates, but it's a different level. And so I don't remember when she starts wearing that headband, but it would be really cool if James yeah. had given it to her. Because I've seen it, seen something like that on him. Um, and they, they did have chemistry. If it works and fits into the continuity, yeah. it'd be really cool if James had given her that. And if it was an Apache headband and that yeah. there, someone who is native could like add a context to this. Because I have to imagine, mm -hmm. again, this is really above my pay grade, but I have to imagine that in the modern age, there is something of a pan-Indigenous, you know, at least intercultural exchange, social exchange. Oh yeah, I, I'm a, a powwow dancer, right? I'm a jingle dancer. And you, you go to powwows, especially these intertribal powwows. Um, so I, I go to ones that are lip on Apache specific, but then there are these large intertribal groups where just all sorts of native nations and tribes all get together and, you know, we hang out. It's, it's a great community building experience. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there are certain elements of, of fashion, of you know, there's stories that, that get exchanged and, and it is very complex. My fiance, for example, is Navajo and, you know, they gave me a squash blossom necklace. So a squash blossom necklace, that's not something an Apache person would make, mm -hmm. but it was a gift for my fiance. So I wear it proudly, you know? Right. Uh, so things like that, it, it's, it's just, there's so, there's so many different cultures on this continent and it's just such a complex, like, kind of relationships among us and it, it would be really cool to explore that between the native mutants um in this so that's why yeah yeah i i, I have a lot of hope for the future and i'm excited to read the the proud star brothers i think are getting a story in this indigenous yeah who's voices. writing the proud star story uh, in the voices issue stephen graham jones oh he's amazing yes. that's really exciting he is such a excellent oh i should have writer. him on to talk about i should have him on to talk about them oh dude if you're yeah. listening, I love your work and we should talk. <laughs> <laughs> and I know that our mutual friend who actually connected us, Rebecca Roanhorse, yeah. is writing about Maya Lopez Echo. Echo! should be fun because she's a tricky character mm. that I think Rebecca will bring a lot of interesting stuff to. I would love to see more of that, to dig more into that, especially now that Danny is back to where she should be leading the new mutants and, mm -hmm. and all of that. I agree that I loved the Hickman and Rice stuff in space mm -hmm. in the initial Dawn of X New Mutants run, but I did feel that it was very clear. I mean, Hickman loves mm -hmm. Cannonball and Sunspot. Yeah. <laughs> it was very much a Sunspot and Cannonball mm -hmm. story with the others all doing fun stuff, yes. but more secondary. Yeah, yeah. And now that Sunspot is like on vacation in Shi'ar space with Cannonball and his wife, hopefully now the other characters will get a little more focus. And I know Vita Ayala is taking over the book and Vita is genius. So I'm really excited to see their take on Danny because I don't know, I'm still high on Marauders 13, which was my favorite storm story in like 30 years. So I can't wait to see Vita writing these characters. So am I right in thinking that they are bringing actually Warpath? into this or that's my understanding okay. yeah all right that that will be exciting let's see how they work together okay that's gonna be yeah. so much fun <laughs>
Yeah, because they were together in X-Force for a bit in the 90s. Oh, that's what, to go back, that was the thing about the 90s stuff that was weird, that it was coming out, and I was like, where is Danny Moonstar? Mm -hmm. And then she shows up, but as a villain. And I actually love her incredibly stupid 90s, like every superheroine in the 90s got a skimpy bathing suit thong costume but i actually really like danny's because it turns out that she's working undercover as an agent of shield and you figure that out pretty quickly Mm -hmm. because it's like why would danny do this right but she's working for the mutant liberation front she's part of like the terrorist organization that the new mutants turned x-force it's their arch enemies and first of all they gave her you know, yes, draws on sort of pop cultural imagery about natives, but also is unbelievably cool. The psychic bow and arrow manifestation of her powers, which was new and sort of like Psylocke's psychic knife. And I always thought that was extremely cool. And they also give her this costume where it's like she's undercover, but she's calling herself Moonstar. So she's not that (laughs) undercover. But for whatever reason, with her red swimsuit she wears a full face mask that covers her whole face and that i thought was just a really cool look sort of like spider-man not a lot of female characters do that Mm -hmm. so it was a very striking design to me but i was relieved when they revealed that it was all yes a bit and that she was actually working for the good guys Mm -hmm. insofar as shield are the good guys but yeah she ends up back with the team and then she has that whole weird power up we were talking about where her powers don't make any sense but there was a moment there that was that was fun. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I've just never been a big X-Force person. Mm. I like Cable and I like all of those New Mutants characters, but X-Force tonally yeah. for me as a book has just never been my favorite yeah. thing. Um, it's a little edgy, like, yeah, for me. Like, it's just a little <laughs> testosterone fueled for my personal taste in X-Men books, yeah. but I understand why people like it. Yes. And then after that, they had her become a teacher. How did you feel about her evolution into a teacher in sort of the Academy X stuff? I, I personally, I like her as a teacher. And it, it's almost like a good kind of arc for her character because she starts out being really resistant to this school and mm-hmm. then actually becomes part of it. But I do think that she tries hard. Didn't she have like a rivalry with like Emma for a while as teachers? Or am I remembering that incorrectly? The way I remember it, and I, this was a period Uh when I was reading Morrison Mm -hmm. and I was reading, unfortunately, Austin's Uncanny, which I, you know, didn't love. And I was reading Extreme, Claremont's book, Mm -hmm. but I was not regularly reading the Academy X stuff. I went back and read it eventually, but my recollection is that like most of the original New Mutants mm. and Kitty, Danny has sort of a respect for Emma mm-hmm. Frost's experience as an educator, but is also sort of like, this is the white queen. So, <laughs> so it was one of those things. It was sort of her and Karma yeah. and Wolfsbane, though that, I don't know how that was written. I remember her sort of working well with Emma Mm -hmm. but there being tension yeah they have history that that's that's right and then the other thing was that she becomes Elixir's guardian Mm -hmm. which I like legally which I remember being an important part of that book which makes again like you said it makes a lot of sense to me Mm -hmm. as an evolution of the character Mm -hmm. who's like you know, now in her 20s, let's say, it's a sliding time scale, but she was an orphan. I mean, Mm -hmm. it turned out that her parents were alive, but 
they weren't for a long time yeah. because of like demon bear shenanigans. She's an orphan who's raised by her grandfather and then her grandfather is murdered by the Hellfire Club. Mm-hmm. So again, reason not to be super trusting of Emma. And then the demon bear attacks her because her grandfather's spells uh, are destroyed upon his death, right? Yeah. So there's a lot going on there. And I think that Elixir, who similarly has a pretty traumatic backstory the original new mutants all have very traumatic backstories and i think that uh his is is along those lines and again this generation of characters the reason i wasn't really reading it was because i was sort of like oh i don't care about a new class of students particularly because i was myself a teenager at the time and just sort of like i like the old characters <laughs> but as i recall elixir's whole deal he got sort of caught up with the purifiers who are this supremacist group, like a human supremacist group. But of course, in the allegory, that has like a white supremacist Mm. edge to it. And I think Danny seeing this sort of damaged, traumatized teenager who got caught up in a really bad crowd and saying, I'm going to help this kid. It feels very much like an extension of her character because she was always the one who tried to protect Wolfsbane back in the day. You know, they had that bond and Wolfsbane was younger than the others. She's always sort of been that type of character. I don't know that I would call her maternal necessarily, but she is a caretaker. Mm -hmm. No, I I was just thinking, and I agree too, because as a teacher of these, she, she treats them almost like family, extended family, not necessarily her children, but people who she cares right. about. And and I do think there's a there's a level of love and affection there. Um, but also thinking of her as a protector, even a protector against people who might not necessarily deserve it. Mm-hmm. One of her coolest, I, I guess, achievements is at one point she defeats death in this showdown yes and the person she is protecting from death who takes on the form of this like western gunslinger is this this kind of jerk (laughs) he's a childhood friend and things went bad between them and she comes like a racist he's a racist he calls her like so many so many uh, slurs (laughs) um, related to uh you know squaw and things like that Mm -hmm. um so he he was really just terrible and at one point he even said he threatens to kill her and then he gets into a car accident and she finds him dying and she decides i'm gonna put myself between you and death and i'm gonna fight death because that i want to i don't know make things better Mm -hmm. and actually death comes back i thought it was interesting that when death returned after being defeated the first time yeah well because she fought off death i remember in power pack it's like their their mother gets really sick and danny fights death Mm -hmm. and saves power pack's mother yeah but this second time (laughs) it doesn't go quite the same way yeah, not to, to protect this racist. She first uh, kills Death as a gunslinger, but of course you can't kill Death. Right? Death comes back in the form of an indigenous, uh, I believe, old woman, mm-hmm. uh, and talks to Danny. And eventually, Death does take this young man. Um, so she doesn't quite defeat Death in that issue, but I, I did think it was interesting that she tried. <laughs> Even though this this guy was just yeah, terrible, even though to this her. guy sucks, yeah, she still she still put her life at risk to try to save him, uh, and I've seen that with her character a lot. Well, and when she's in the MLF mm-hmm. in the nineties, yeah. the big thing that she's doing there is that she and 
I'm going to need to do a lot of research before I talk about Rainfire at all, because I have very little recollection of how that plot line ultimately resolved, because it got retconned like 20 times. <laughs> but the way it was initially written, as far as I can remember it, is that Rainfire was like an evil sunspot from the future. Yeah. He kills Brightwind. We'll get to that in the uh, fan question in a little bit. But he's horrible. Yeah. And it's like, this is the worst guy but she feels compelled on some level to stick around in this sort of undercover role because she recognizes that this is her friend Roberto and she wants to save him. Yeah. Even if he doesn't deserve it anymore. And I do think that that's part of her character. I think that while I really don't like how Wolfsbane is written in that Academy mm. X stuff where she like has an affair with a student. Oh yeah, no, no, I did not like gross. that. Sorry, no. <laughs> And not just a student, but like Danny's like legal yeah. charge, Elixir. Even in all of that, I mean, Danny's compassion for her friends, even when they are mm -hmm. really broken, messed up people, is something that I think is important to the character. Mm. But she's not a pushover. Like, it's not that she's just willing to take it. It's that I think she challenges people to be better mm -hmm. versions of themselves. Yeah. And she will stick around to give you time to do mm -hmm. that, but only... To an extent. Yes. <laughs> you know, she's not going to just take abuse, but she would like to give you advice and then watch you take that advice. Yeah. <laughs> so what's weird to me, and I get it if the goal was to force that new generation of students to grow up mm -hmm. a little, but my father, who stopped reading around 97, was telling me like, because I hate the destination. I hate that whole era of stories. I mean, there's there's stuff in there that I like. I think Dark Rain is fun. I think there's some good stuff on Utopia occasionally, but it's just yeah. not, I don't like the premise yeah. of the destination. And my father was like, yeah, I don't think I would like that much either. And I said, well, the thing that's most ridiculous about it is that there's only 200 mutants left, but as it so happens, almost all of them are characters you've already heard of and care about. And most of the X-Men are completely fine. And it felt like, apart from Polaris, who gets her powers back via Apocalypse very quickly, the sort of big sacrificial lamb character in terms of this has consequences and someone lost her powers. I guess Jubilee, but Gen X had been canceled and Jubilee wasn't doing much anymore. Mm -hmm. The biggest character at that time to get depowered and have it stick was Danny. Yeah. And I find that odd. I get that, like, she is a character who has come in and out of the books. Right. Like, she stays in Asgard or she's not with X-Force. or So she is a character that is not necessarily essential. Mm -hmm. You can have her leave for a bit and the book still makes sense. But they had gone to such an effort to build her back up as this very important character at Xavier's. And to me, it just felt like an odd choice. And I never felt like she got a story out of it that justified doing it. Yeah, just me as a, as a fan and a reader of Danny who really enjoyed the inventiveness of her powers and the way that she could use them as, as part of the team. Um, I, I personally was disappointed. Uh, there were some, some moments when she continued to try to fight, mm -hmm. uh, even though she didn't have, have the power. I think at one point she even saved uh Sam Guthrie or Cannonball after he told her not to put herself at risk. Yeah. Well, she came back and she didn't have her powers, but she still saved his life. And then she like drove off into the sunset or. <laughs> I mean, she hangs around. She yeah. hangs around with no powers. Yeah. 
it's mm-hmm. she's around just like doing her thing. <laughs> and there was that minute where she was like the initiative hired her uh-huh. to try and train students because Emma fires her after she yes. uses the cards. <laughs> As an Emma fan, I am very conflicted on the way they write Emma right after the destination because I love the issue where she tells Carol Danvers to go fuck herself. <laughs> that issue's great. But I do think that there were two very weird things they had Emma do in that period. And one is firing Danny. And mm-hmm. the other is when she like has all of the younger class of New Mutants fight in like a battle royale to see who's going to be on the field team. Right. I, it just doesn't feel like something yeah. Emma would do to me. Like even when she was evil, that feels like not quite her teaching methods. Mm-hmm. I mean, she was hard on the Hellions, but not quite like that. But the thing with Danny is interesting because... Emma's justification for having all of the depowered mutants leave the school is that because Cassandra Nova revealed the nature of the school in the Morrison run, the school is under pretty much constant threat. I mean, during this whole Mm storyline, like Reverend Stryker does blow up a bus and kill like 40 of the depowered students. And, And that does sort of underline Emma's point, which is these students no longer have the ability to defend themselves with superpowers and we are a target for bigots and they need to leave because they're not safe here. And so that I can understand, but with Danny, it doesn't quite make sense to me because it feels like if she wants to stay, like she could still train people without having powers. Or, I don't know. It, it felt a little contrived to me. And again, it felt like it was to force Elixir and the other characters on that era of the student body to grow up without their mentor, because it just left them with Karma, who is a more passive character, honestly. Right. I like Karma a lot, yeah. but Danny is the one who really is going to tell you yes. what to do. Karma might take over your mind and make you do something, <laughs> but she is not the most sort of headstrong yes. character. And yeah, there's one thing, Danny, is it, it is headstrong. <laughs> oh, Yeah. Absolutely. I remember during the Utopia period, one story I really did like was when all of the Utopia versus Norman Osborn stuff is happening. Cyclops like calls up Danny and is like, can you go talk to Hela and see if you can get your Valkyrie powers back? Because like Ares is on Norman's team, the god. Yeah. And I don't have a god. So if you could like become a Valkyrie again, that would be super helpful. And she goes and makes a deal with Hela. Hela is always fun. I would like to see more <laughs> Danny and Hela stuff. Brightwind comes back from the dead. God bless. Or, you know, Hela bless in this yeah. case, I suppose. <laughs> what I liked about Emma and Scott together was that Emma challenged Scott to be more assertive and that Scott challenged Emma to maybe second guess her snap decisions and so I liked when once she was a Valkyrie he was like do you want to stay and be a teacher again because you're not a mutant but you're a very experienced superhero Uh you know and we're we're running pretty low on staff here because there's only 200 mutants left so I like that but she ends up not doing that because she goes off with the new mutants again isn't that when she and Sam start dating I, I believe so um yeah that through me I, I they he like yeah <laughs> i'm not cr- like opposed to it per se yeah. but they just have such a siblingy mm-hmm. relationship to yes me that when it became romantic i was thrown off i think that's it um it, it felt a little bit seeing them kiss was it was a it was a change um yeah and i do think now that you bring it up it was because for the longest time i kind of thought of them as you know brother and sister got along 
Uh, not they that were like well. the team's yeah. big brother and yeah. big sister. Yeah. Uh, and kind of back to I I love her relationship with Hella because she's not disrespectful. No, but she's not like cowering or de- or like bowing and stuff. She she almost speaks to this this goddess as as equals, which I actually think is really cool. And even when Hella Hella like tries to call in this favor, Danny kind of resists. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it comes to a point where she can't. But still, it, it's it's she's she's not even going to be run over by a godlike figure. Yeah, but I mean, notably, the end of her time with the original team yeah. of New Mutants happens because Hella pulls some yes. real fuckery <laughs> and tries to kill Odin, and Danny gets transformed into like a demon Valkyrie. Oh my gosh, that was scary. <laughs> yeah, and like after all of that, Danny's like, I'm gonna stay on Asgard mm-hmm. and help them fix all of this stuff she and hella have a very yes so it's fun to see danny go back and be like all right sign me back up but we're not friends (laughs) i love that (laughs) and like i don't serve yes you know what i mean like i'm i'll give you a favor but like i don't work for you i do think that that is an interesting aspect of danny's character that does go back to the fact that she has sort of her own spirituality that is not this norse european thing and so for her hella is just sort of a powerful being like the beyonder or the phoenix or any number of other things the x-men have encountered i remember there's a whole story after she leaves the team a marvel comics presents in the early Mm -hmm. 90s where like a Cheyenne deity goes to Asgard and is like, you shouldn't be here and I'm here to bring you back to the tribe because this is messed up. And she's just like, I'll come back eventually. I'm just like chilling here on Asgard right now to, to help and I'll be back. Yeah. So it's fine. That's always sort of been interesting to me. Like she's not immune to it, obviously, because she does have to pay Hela's favor. And yes. because back in the 80s, she gets real, real messed up by Hela at one point. Or it's not the 80s. I think that was literally 1990. Mm-hmm. But there is a part of her that I guess because she's... And Storm also is a character who interacts with Asgard in the same way, actually, now that I think about it. Yeah. Because they come from this sort of non-Western... Mm-hmm. I mean, well, Native American spirituality is Western, but you get what I'm saying in terms of hegemonic, like, white yeah. Western culture. Since they don't come from that background, they seem sort of more able to call the Asgardian gods on their shit. Yeah. And just sort of be like, I don't really care that much about what you have to say. <laughs> And I think that that's an interesting kind of empowered position that they're given. So I was glad when they did that Valkyrie stuff again, because she had been depowered for so long. Mm. And even though I missed her mutant powers, which she only got back very recently in the most recent before Dawn of X, like run on New Mutants. I was like, at least she's back in the thick of it, you know? Yeah. One thing that I I was excited to write about is having Krakoa now as like a nation. Mm-hmm. How does that? Co- how can Danny balance that with being a member of a semi-sovereign nation? She's both Cheyenne, but also now she's Krakoan. Mm-hmm. Can you belong to two nations? How does she almost? Where do her priorities lie? Because like you say, she it is important for her to protect other mutants. Um, and that's something that I think Krakoa is accomplishing, but also there. Again, I just like to investigate how can she, how she can be many things and still not sacrifice that cultural core. Yeah. that she is still Cheyenne. She's also Krakoan. She's also a Valkyrie. <laughs> yeah, because it's one thing to 
It's one thing to be an American Mm -hmm. who decides I'm Krakoan now. I'm leaving America to go be part of this minority nation that I feel connected to. Same is true if you're British or any number of other places. But when you are part of an indigenous nation, that is itself a minority nation that is under constant threat and attack, right? Yes. (laughs) It's not like she's just leaving this sort of dominant hegemonic Mm -hmm. space to become part of a minority state. She is leaving one minority state to become part of another. And I do think there's a very interesting story that could be told there. Yeah. That would be a great way to actually have her and Forge talk like Cheyenne stuff. Yeah, that would be. Because he would probably have a very different perspective on it from <laughs> one she would have. Because he's spent his whole life kind of running from it. You know what I yeah, mean? Yeah, I, I bet you. And it's it's almost like, well, how how is this new like mutant nation going to interact with a different, for example, federally recognized indigenous groups in the United States? Right. Do those nations recognize Krakoa? Yeah, like politically it's it's really cool. Um, so I, I hope that they do expand on that in some ways and yeah it is almost like because i'm lip on apache i'm also a u.s citizen right so this is something that native people in the u.s have to deal with and so is danny i think yeah she is too uh so just having to to kind of live in a way where you can be multiple things and there's this kind of dominant narrative that you're torn between two worlds or you're sacrificing one thing for another but i do think there's a way to exist where the two worlds coexist within you and it's not being torn in half. Um, and I, I think that's actually something Danny throughout her character's development is working towards, uh, which I like a lot. <laughs> and I would love to see that because that's one of the things I find most interesting about Kitty and mm-hmm. Magneto, just yeah. coming from like a, a Jewish perspective, mm-hmm. because that's of course also a central tension in sort of the Jewish American experience. And Krakoa is very provocative because it asks a lot of questions mm-hmm. about Zionism. Yeah. I mean, House of X opens in Jerusalem, as I pointed out last week. So I don't think that yeah. they're shying away from asking those mm-hmm. questions. But there is the anti-Semitic idea of dual loyalty and the idea that Jews put ourselves first mm-hmm. rather than being, you know, real American. Oh, yeah. I think that Native Americans, despite being the realest Americans in, <laughs> you know, many senses, <laughs> are subjected to that same idea because there is this idea like, oh, well, you're more loyal to your tribal nation than you are to the USA, which like, frankly, if you were, I wouldn't blame you. But you know, <laughs> the USA hasn't exactly been kind to the tribal nation, to say the least. I mean, there, you know, was a whole genocide that happened. Yeah, uh, several, really. Yeah, they're they're that. There's been interesting stuff recently in Jerry Duggan's Marauders with Kitty sort of mm-hmm. embrace it because her Jewish heritage had been downplayed a lot in yeah. more recent years, whereas like Claremont used to emphasize it a lot. But apart from like sort of one issue where Bendis has her talk about it, it hasn't really been a big deal. And in Marauders, they've had it come up a bunch. And I think that that's because one of the questions on Krakoa is sort of like, what does being Krakoan mm-hmm. mean when you have other identities that are also very important to you? And I think that it would be great to see Moonstar have a similar Mm -hmm. exploration of that 
yeah theme and that question because like you said it doesn't have to be either or mm-hmm. you don't have to say i'm jewish first and american second or i'm american first and jewish second yeah i'm obviously the same is true of being native if you're also an american citizen yeah now that warpath is coming into the book maybe that's something that vita is going to explore i mean that would be interesting oh that would be that would be really cool i'm, I'm gonna definitely be reading uh, to find out oh same i'm very excited about that yeah <laughs> I I remember when the announcement was like out on Twitter, I was like, I can't retweet this enough. And I was kind of wondering, too, uh, just something that I also explore with with writing Danny. Like you get just 10 pages, so it's not a lot of room, but I I was trying to do the things that I was most passionate about. So like in the past, the X-Men or mutants have been used almost as a stand-in to show how different type of minority groups are treated. Mm-hmm. And something for me, I'm, I'm queer, I'm getting married to another queer native. And something we know just traditionally is that the way that, for example, trans people have been treated right. in our cultural history is very different from the way they've been treated, for example, in Europe's history. So I was wondering if there wouldn't be some maybe tribal nations that would be more accepting or more like welcoming or loving of mutants who would maybe think that they were like sacred. Yeah. And of course, there's so much variety out there. So that that's something, too, that I thought would be interesting to explore, especially with her character. Oh, that would be so cool. Yeah. That would also be a great way. Something that has been pointed out is like, the X-Men, I've always thought the X-Men are at their best when you have characters like Danny or like Storm or like Kitty who literalize certain aspects mm-hmm. of the metaphor by having an experience where they're yeah. also a racial or ethnic minority yeah. or, you know, North Star does it sometimes with gay stuff or whatever. Yeah. And something that has been pointed out that I think is very true is there are no trans characters in the X-Men. Yeah. And partially that's because I think trans characters in pop culture generally are only beginning to yes there are sort of one-offs in in various superhero books over the years Mm -hmm. but in terms of explicitly this is a trans character who's going to stick around who's going to be a person outside of like Rachel Pollock's Doom Patrol I can't really think of of many and if Danny sort of reconnects with her roots a bit more that might be a way to introduce an indigenous character who views gender differently that could be interesting that would be cool that's another thing they should hire you to write <laughs> yeah just i i would opinion. love i would love to write more <laughs> danny and you know more x i'm just putting that out there <laughs> but yeah it, it's giant size x-men moonstar by darcy little badger just saying i'm, I'm putting so it out many, the universe that five pages that list the reason why i wanted to write danny i gotta put that all in the comics like i have so many ideas yeah you got a bible yeah basically and it's like if you read something long enough you just keep thinking and getting new ideas and and it, it was just so exciting to have this chance i got just ah (laughs) i'm so excited to read it i am i'd have to go back and read all the stuff with forge and naze his sort of mystical mentor who factors in the fall of the mutants because his body gets taken over by the adversary although that got retconned and it's complicated but the point is i seem to remember the implication there being that forge was kind of seen as sacred because he had gifts yeah and I think that Danny certainly is seen, I mean, as I said, there's a whole storyline where a Cheyenne god comes to try and reclaim her from Asgard. So there is a sense that these gifted members of the tribe are seen as valuable in contrast to 
the way that the dominant American culture views nudes. So that would be an interesting thing to explore further. Yeah, you certainly, for me, when her parents do come back, there, there's a lot of mutants whose parents basically uh, reject them, turn them away. Reject them. Yeah, yeah, Danny's parents, in contrast, they're very loving. And they they like try to actually be supportive environment for her. Um, so if that's any indication, then yeah, it may be different for her people. I'd, I'd like to know more. Yeah. Then, of course, the Tom Corsi and Sharon Friedlander stuff happens. Let's just scoot right over that. Let's not um, know that it never happened. No, I, it's good to bring it up, though. Like, well, well, listen, they killed off, they killed off Sharon, and yeah. Tom hasn't been seen in a long time. So I think that as far as Marvel's concerned, that never happened. Yeah, yeah. Uh, for those of you who are not aware, because I did not mention this in the character file, <laughs> basically, when the demon bear stuff is happening and Danny gets brought to the hospital... Tom Corsi, who's a cop, and Sharon Friedlander, who's a nurse, get, like, kidnapped and possessed by the demon bear and turned into, like, a demon slaves. And once they're freed from the bear, they are white people to start, but at the end of the story, they have been transformed into uh, hyper-physically perfected Native Americans. <laughs> this is a full... Uh, this is a full... How many years before, uh, before Psylocke happens? I'm like, Chris, you got to stop doing this. You got to stop it. Uh, <laughs> and this is, yeah, this is six years before Psylocke gets turned into an Asian lady. So, but, and because now they don't exist, like they're, they're these new people now in terms of what they look like and whatever. They're like, well, now we can't go back to our old lives. So they end up working at Xavier's and becoming like part of the, the crew and the cast of the book. Um, but it's very very strange yeah <laughs> i believe that emma fired tom corsi when she fired danny and that he just has never been seen again and sharon was killed off in the early 90s because i think the the new writers on the book were just like we can't have this character stare yeah that no, nothing of value lost there i have to say that's one of the things where i where i read that I, like you know you get this cringe reaction that's i think what i had when i read that um it, it did very much play into because even as a white child i knew that story was weird big cringe and it like it, it does play into this this belief that being native is almost like a costume because like they not only turn brown a superpower and a yeah, costume they like kind of start acting like stereotypes typical native people afterwards just like in their garb mm -hmm. and uh, <laughs> they become very like noble mm -hmm. upstanding sort of mm -hmm. and, and like the fact that they're also they also become physically perfect and have enhanced strength oh and they're not brown because back in that oh time, yeah danny included all of the all of the native american characters were just sort of magenta oh that's uh, right. which is <laughs> truly wild yeah so so that <laughs> uh, a little bit awkward yeah but i mean you know that's uh it was it was a different time i guess but no there's there those are very weird characters and i remember because i started reading after demon bear i didn't know that about this is the experience most people have with psylocke which i didn't have because i encountered psylocke first in the 80s stuff where she's white but I didn't know that Tom and Sharon weren't actually Native American until I went back and read earlier stuff. And I was just like, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> yeah, that's so not it, acceptable. <laughs> it's going to bring that, but it's definitely we'll not. We'll move my on. I don't. Part. I don't mean to <laughs> yeah. you believe so that. Point. Get, you get yeah. really uncomfortable reading it. Like I think not just as a Native person. Like, I think most, uh, hopefully, most people 
got, got that cringe reaction of these days. But well, and then there's the the storyline where Empath manipulates them oh into having gosh. like a sex fest oh, that for like was three just... days, and they show up in like bondage gear. I did and not like, like that. So <laughs> they've become racial stereotypes, uh-huh. and now they can't stop fucking. Yeah. I don't know. It was like not. No, not not, a bright. Love Chris Claremont. That's not a great. That's not a great moment. (laughs) So I think that's a good moment to move on to our reader question. Mitch Hobza writes, "Hi Connor and Darcy. Early New Mutants stand here, and I am excited for a Danny episode. My question comes from general ignorance and an inability to piece together internet summaries. I used to play a lot of hero clicks, and one of my favorite units was Danny riding on a Pegasus." In Inferno, I gathered she somehow received this as a Valkyrie, question mark, exclamation point in parentheses, but I never read the later New Mutants issues, so I don't know how she received a Pegasus. Even more pressing is a question that has puzzled me. Where did her Pegasus go? I never saw it in the brief New Mutants reboot in 2003, and why have we not seen it in Dawn of X? Will it ever return? I appreciate that your podcast gives voice to queer fandom of the X-Men, and as a queer man, I have to know where this Pegasus went. Thank you. Okay. So we've covered that a little bit. What what are you what were you saying? Go ahead. No, I I was I was gonna agree that I, I do really love that Pegasus. Uh but please go on. <laughs> it's a it's a quality Pegasus. Yes. So the Pegasus is named Brightwind. We've covered this a little bit in our discussion and, and also I sort of related the broad strokes in the character file, but essentially Danny becomes a Valkyrie in the first place because when the new mutants are in Asgard, she saves Brightwind from danger and the Pegasi are what choose the Valkyries essentially. Like, so he is like, you are my rider now. And therefore she becomes a Valkyrie. So it's in part because actually of, as we've said, her like bond with animals that she is thrust into that role. And so she has the Pegasus for a while, and then she stays in Asgard in the very late run of the New Mutants, right before it turns into X-Force in 1990. We don't really see her for a while after that. And then when she pops back up in X-Force as an apparent bad guy, she does not have the Pegasus or any of her Valkyrie powers. They kind of glossed over it to some extent, but clearly she's no longer a Valkyrie. She fell from that position in some sense. Brightwind is killed, as we said earlier, by Rainfire, who's an alternate evil sunspot, kind of. Again, I forget. I think it turned out that he was like a parasite entity or something. It was very Phoenix Force at the end, but I don't remember exactly how it works. And I will reread all of that before I ever do a Sunspot episode, I promise. (laughs) So Brightwind gets killed off pretty unceremoniously in the 90s and then is just dead for a long time. And in that 2003 New Mutants run that you mentioned, she's not a Valkyrie. So that aspect isn't explored. But then when she goes to Hela in the Utopia period and is like, put me in coach, Hela resurrects Brightwind. So Brightwind comes back. But I will say Brightwind hasn't been seen since I think 2011, except like in 2019, Claremont did a uh, a one-off sort of New Mutant special issue set in the 80s. But that doesn't count because it's a flashback. I don't think we've seen Brightwind since Siege, but I could be completely wrong. I would love to see Brightwind. I would love to see Brightwind pop up on Krakoa. I see no reason why Danny couldn't have a Pegasus on Krakoa. Like, (laughs) Kitty has Lockheed. Like, you can have weird pets hanging around. There was a 
fun bit in Marauders where Emma and Kitty were riding horses. So, like, let Danny ride her Pegasus. Did you get to use Brightwind at all in your 10-pager? <laughs> no, but... So, I, I gotta say, I did something close uh, without... One thing I, I do love that connection between Danny and her Pegasus, Brightwind. Um, so when you're writing a native character, like there is a balance to be had between stereotypes and genuine, like really cool things that we were good at. So like as a an Apache woman, my ancestors and also my current relatives are really great at handling horses. Actually, the lip on Apache we were so keen at, at knowing their behavior that we would uh, know that during the rain, it was easiest to round up wild horses and then know how to train them. And there's actually a great skill to understanding animal behavior mm -hmm. and then to basically becoming a partner with this, this large, this dangerous animal. Very dangerous. It's a horse with wings. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's really cool. There, some of the earliest photos of my grandmother are with her with her horse. Um, you know, my partner is a veterinarian and just the fact that they're able to manage large animals is just so cool to me. Um, so I do think that it would it's really neat that she has this Pegasus. And I do wish there was an emphasis on her having this because of maybe the skills that she has rather than this innate like connection spiritual connection because a lot of times our knowledge like because we have a lot of knowledge that is kind of waved off as you know mystical connection right. with the earth well no we're just agricultural geniuses we're just really great at you know knowing the behavior of these animals you know so like things like that i i do think that there is a way to appreciate like the 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 role that horses have played in lots of indigenous people's lives here on this continent um, without being stereotypical and reading Danny's stories I, I I don't find it to be stereotypical you know I think it's really cool um, so I want her to have that Pegasus back <laughs> yeah I if if anyone in the extra is listening I mean I just knowing Vidaella's work I would be shocked if the Pegasus didn't pop up ah. so. <laughs> I feel like Vita would want to play with a Pegasus. I don't know. Just yeah. like, I don't know Vita personally. We've met, but like we, we don't know each other on a personal level. But just based on having read their work, I feel like they're the kind of writer who would agree with us that Danny's Pegasus is really <laughs> fucking cool and we should have more Pegasus time. So now I'm going to make you play my game, which is a very silly game. My apologies in advance. Okay. The premise of the game is... If Danny Moonstar were a cast member on The Real Housewives with Krakoa, what would be her tagline in the opening credits? What is The Real Housewives? Oh, no. <laughs> so You've I've, listened I've, to the podcast before, I though. have, but like I don't understand. Like, So I know The Real Housewives is okay. like a TV show. What is, right. what is, like, how do you give them, like, is it just something fun? You know what? This is probably good to explain to the audience okay. generally because I know okay. I know a lot of the flat scans have the same question <laughs> that you have. Basically, on The Real Housewives, which is a docu-series on Bravo, mm -hmm. a docu-series franchise, each season in the opening credits, they, they each sort of turn one by one to the camera and their name is superimposed above them. And they have kind of a quip or like a pithy one-liner that's usually a reference to the role they're going to play on the show that season but some, it's often a pun, and it's mostly just them having a snappy line that the gays on Twitter are going to go, yeah, <laughs> over. Like, it's, it's basically that simple. So, like, 
the one I came up with for Danny uh-huh, uh-huh. was she turns to the camera and kind of looks up at Dan and goes, that's your worst fear? It ought to be me. Oh, I like that. Because she just read... <laughs> She just read the other girls and she's like, oh, no, 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 no. Like, I'm much scarier than, you know, whatever I just saw in your head. Okay, so do exactly that, except in Cheyenne. So she's speaking her language. <laughs> I think that, there you go. I, I, that's it. <laughs> That'd be great. I mean, listen, on Jersey Housewives, we speak Italian all the time. So I see no reason oh, why Danny shouldn't teach the viewers at home a little bit of that. Do we know, actually, does Danny, I can't remember, does Danny speak Cheyenne fluently? Is I, that something that's been established? I, I can't recall that she has. Um, but again, there's there's so much content out there. I will revisit. But if that hasn't been explored, that's something that, again, like maybe she and Forge can talk yeah. about. Because I bet Forge doesn't. I bet Forge is just like, yeah, fuck that. And it's the kind of thing where not everyone speaks their language. And there's like almost tension between people. Right. It's like, like, you got to learn it. And people are like, it's so hard. And I, you know, there, there's a whole bunch of ways of being indigenous <laughs> i feel like danny is someone who would because yes. she does seem to care so much about mm-hmm. cultural preservation which is like one of the reasons to learn a language that is endangered yes so i think that would be interesting i'm always intrigued by that subject as someone who is like irish but speaks like not a word of irish oh you're irish i am connor goldsmith yeah i love that i'm i'm half um, Irish American. That's why I'm. That's my dad's. Uh, Ryan. Gotcha. Yeah. Well, I just went to Ireland for the first time mm. recently, and it was it was really wild to feel like I was setting foot on like an ancestral homeland. It was kind of overwhelming in that way because my Irish family left in uh, in Great Hunger. Yeah. And actually, there's a very interesting history between Irish people mm-hmm. and Native American yeah. people because during the Great Hunger, which was well, it was a genocide and we just don't talk about it yeah. that way because that's not how the British want it to be taught. So during the Great Hunger in like 1847, the Choctaw Nation sent money to Ireland to like help. And the Choctaw at the time were living in enormous hardship because like the Trail of Tears was pretty recent at that time. And they sent, I want to say like, adjusting for inflation about $20,000 to Ireland, like to try and aid in relief efforts. And so there is a really incredible statue in Cork about that relationship. Um, that's sort of a monument to the Choctaw. And there is sort of a relationship between Ireland and the Choctaw nation that I think has continued to this day, which I think is very cool. So it's not something I know a ton about, but I have always found that neat yeah I, th- I mentioned this too earlier um but actually my fiance and i both have irish american fathers mm-hmm. uh navajo or apache mothers irish american fathers i'm not saying that means anything but <laughs> i think it's pretty cool too who knows yeah. who knows i mean i get frustrated with other irish american people who uh like to compare <laughs> our plight to uh other flights that I don't think it's equivalent to. But I do think that there are parallels in the history in terms of being colonized and, you know, fighting for for sovereignty over your own land Mm -hmm. that definitely they recognized Mm -hmm. each other. So after the Housewives game, what I usually do is story recommendations. So I'd love to let you take that away to start. What are your favorite Danny stories that you would recommend to someone new to the character? I'm tempted to say just to start with the new mutants, but you could just read like the first five issues if you want. The Demon Bear story, it, although keep in mind there are some some awkward, cringeworthy parts. Uh, and <laughs> and then, no, uh, I found that 
it was easy for me to get into the 2019 ongoing New Mutants. So yeah, that would be a good place to start. Um, and like maybe read House of X. That would be my recommendation. So if if just just start with the New Mutants. I would agree. I mean, my advice always in this segment is to say go to the character's first appearance and just mm-hmm. start reading. But that's because I love the classic stuff <laughs> best. But I do think that with Danny, there is a lot of merit to going back to 1982, starting with the beginning of New Mutants and just reading straight through to when she leaves the team. I don't think that her X-Force stuff is enormously essential. But again, I'm not a big X-Force person, so your mileage may vary on that. And I think that the stuff that's happening now in Dawn (laughs) of X, they haven't done a ton with her yet, but... Mm -hmm she's definitely going to to play a role, yeah. I think, as things go forward. I'm trying to think of anything else. I mean, the Utopia era is just not mm-hmm. my favorite, as I've mm-hmm. said, but I do really like the War of the Realms and, and Siege stuff with Danny specifically. That was a really fun time for that character. Yeah. So, and, oh, and Fearless Defenders was cute. It didn't last that long. It was like <laughs> an all-female team. Yeah. Uh, and she was on that with Valkyrie. It was pretty gay. It was fun. That was that cute. Was that was a fun I time. forgot about that. Okay. I, I want to I add that to my... <laughs> have you seen the New Mutants movie? I have not. No, I was going it. to watch it for this interview, but I, I, I have not. I might in the future. I was also going to watch it for this. Yeah. And then <laughs> was like, I don't want to, quite frankly, after the way that the director spoke about the whitewashing controversy, I was already disinclined to watch this movie, but now I really don't want to give him any of my money. So I'm like, maybe I'll wait until it's on cable or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. No pun intended on uh, <laughs> the one-time leader of the New Mutants. But I do think it's cool to shape an origin story for them around the Demon Bear. I do think that makes sense. It's not their first story in the comics, but it is what really establishes the mm-hmm. book and is the most iconic story from that early run. And it's nice to see Danny as the protagonist because again, she hasn't been that very often. And I liked the idea of them having Danny and Rain be a couple yeah. in the movie. That is a cool idea to me. Like with most close female friendships in Chris Claremont's stuff, there was always a vibe you could choose to read into between Danny and Rain. But Rain was very Catholic and traumatized. So it never goes anywhere. Yeah. Like, And you can read it very, very innocently if you want. Yeah. But I do think that if you're looking back at that 80s material and thinking, how do we modernize this? I think that's a cool idea. But there are just so many elements of the of, I mean the the apart the whitewashing was why I initially had no interest and then I heard that apparently Ilyana is like really racist <laughs> to Danny the whole time uh. which I first of all must we second of all <laughs> it feels bizarre to me because Ilyana is from Russia mm-hmm. and I can't imagine I mean like in the comics she was in limbo most of her life in yeah. this movie my understanding is that they turn it into a, a sex trafficking thing which I actually think if you can't do limbo that is sort of a a smart way to reframe that because there's a lot of similar implications in the limbo stuff but I'll get into that in an Ilyana mm-hmm. episode at some point but either way I can't imagine she's like super pop culture mm-hmm. savvy so why is this Russian teenager have like defined racist ideas about Native Americans? Like if she was yeah. talking about Roma people or Poles or like Ukrainians, I would be like, okay, like 
this is a character interpretation I don't agree with because Ilyana has never been that kind of character, but at least it would be sensical. The idea that the Russian girl has a lot of, of shit to say about Native Americans mm-hmm. feels implausible to be in addition to being unnecessary. Yeah, and I, there are many ways to bully someone if they really wanted to go that way that, that don't have anything Correct. to do with race. So it, it does seem very strange to me if they do that in the movie. Um, I'm not sure why, but yeah, I, I haven't watched Especially it. when the director talked so much <laughs> about how he didn't care about the race stuff with Sunspot mm. and he didn't think that was relevant. Yeah. Because that literally, first of all, is Sunspot's origin story, that he's black and in Brazil people are racist to him. Yeah. But also, if you don't care about the race stuff there, why are you hyper aware of mm-hmm. Danny's race? Yeah. I- that That's a weird... That's just a weird choice to me. But listen, yes. I haven't seen it. For all I know, it's genius. I don't think it is, though, because everyone I know who's seen it did not enjoy it. It's a shame because Anya Taylor-Joy is perfect casting for Liana Rescue. That was genius. So I was really looking forward to it when the casting was first announced for her. And then other casting was announced that made me less enthused. But yeah, so uh, we have not seen the New Mutants movie, so uh, uh, no comment, except we just commented a bunch. <laughs> you get what I'm saying. I do like Wolfsbane Mirage, you know, as a teenager and, you know, as a queer teenager growing up, I I did read into their very close, almost soulmate type friendship. Mm-hmm. I, I read it into it like in a romantic way. And that might have been just subconsciously because that's how I felt about, you know, some other girls. I don't know. Um, but I do think it's cool. I think that all the queer fans of the X-Men felt that way, yeah. especially reading the Claremont stuff. And I think that Claremont intended it. Yeah. He said as much, you know. Um, and, you know, I, I think it's cool that even even if it's not like a romantic emphasis, just emphasizing their closeness. I just really like that. Um, and that's yes. something... I don't know if I'm able to talk too much about this, but it is something that I managed to put in that 10-page uh, Danny Moonstar story. I do bring back Will Oh, Spain. good. Yeah. I'm glad to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah, because I, I did really like their closeness. Um, whether you interpret it as romantic or not, in, in, they're close, and that that's indisputable. Well, I remember you pointed out to me when we were talking the other day about like how there's a moment because Karma being a lesbian was like a one off joke in the 90s. And then when they brought her back as a real character again, it was like, oh, well, this is a lesbian character. Let's deal with it, I suppose. And there's a moment where Danny is just like, well, as a heterosexual, like, I don't understand. Yeah. And, and anyone who anyone who read this stuff in the 80s is just like, as a what? Like, it's like, please, are please you sure? Inform. Like 100 percent? It was a very strange scene because I think a barista was being nice to Danny and she just had to tell her friend, I hope she knows I'm heterosexual or, you know, something like that. And I was like, unlike you, uh, right, unlike yeah. you, maybe you should ask her out, I guess. <laughs> But yeah, it did seem a little bit that that dashed my hopes when I read it. But, you know, people are fluid. Yeah, I feel like Richter has had a long journey to being openly gay. And Danny could I mean, Kitty Pride is finally like textually, perhaps Ooh. bisexual on panel. Neat. So there's no, I, I'm I'm a big fan of letting all of the Claremont women <laughs> who were very bi just like be bi and of letting Ileana and Rachel just be lesbians because that's I think the vibe I always got Mm -hmm. from the two of them but I do think that it would be fun to 
play into at least the implications that were sort of made about Danny and Rain, especially now that Rain is back from the dead and Danny has her powers again and they're sort of back in their sort of milieu that they used to be in. And on Krakoa, everyone's kind of seeing what's what. It wouldn't be any weirder than the that minute that Danny was with Sam, which oh. to me felt so odd. <laughs> and I'm not opposed. Like, it's not like I don't, like, again, it's yeah. not once I wrapped my brain around it, I was like, oh, they would actually be very good together. Yeah. It's like not a bad idea as a couple, but it felt so different from their relationship yes. back when that I was like, whoa. Anyway, I don't want to take up too, too much more of your time. So I am going to thank you again for being my guest. I'm really excited about Marvel Voices Indigenous Voices, which I would love for you to plug and tell the audience about when it's coming out and how they can pre-order it, et cetera, and anything else you would like to plug and how they can follow you on the web. So take it away. Awesome. Okay. Um, I'm most active in terms of social media on Twitter, where you can follow me at Shining Comic. And Marvel's Indigenous Voices is coming this November, and it's really exciting. It's got three stories. And the 10-page Danny Moonstar story I'm writing has art by Kyle Charles, and it kind of explores what it means to be Danny in this new era of mutant kind. Um, she's also helping out a young person. I might have been able to create a mutant, but that was exciting, and I hope you enjoy That's it. Exciting. I know. Oh, I, I want to talk about this so much. This, this entire, I, uh, it was just, uh, it was a great opportunity. And I hope that you enjoy the story uh, and that I was able to convey everything I wanted to in 10 pages. <laughs> I know the art's going to be amazing. I encourage everyone to pre-order that because it's coming next month. And I think that these showcases are really important, like this issue, because for a lot of people, for you, for example, it's your first work with Marvel Comics. Yes. And I think that creating inroads like that for marginalized creators is really important. And so I'm glad that they're doing these projects because on the strength of this 10 pager, who knows what you could wind up writing in the future. Yeah. And this this is just a little thing, but it meant so much for me. We, we talked about a lot about the clothes that Danny has worn. And at one point for the artistic references, I sent images of Apache dresses, my Apache dresses to clothe some characters in the story. And I just think it's so cool that we have this opportunity to represent who we are right now as contemporary peoples in this amazing universe. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. My debut novel, Alatsue, actually is a young adult fantasy mystery. Uh, but I've heard that it that, you know, adults enjoy reading it too. So <laughs> check it out. It's E-L-A-T-S-O-E because it, it's spelled in a way where it's kind of, you know, it's 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 in the lip on language. So um, some people pronounce it a lazo, but it's a lazo way. Well, I have not read it yet, but I really enjoyed your short fiction. So <gasps> oh, thank I, you. I'm definitely keen to see more. And it's been really nice getting to know you. I'm glad Rebecca connected us. You can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at Cerebrocast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can write with comments, questions, or feedback to Cerebro at cerebrocast.gmail.com. And you can find all of the episodes along with transcripts and visual histories of each character as I get them done at cerebrocast.com, which is our new official landing page. I would say R because it's a podcast. It's just me in my house. <laughs> Thank you all so much for 
your support of this pod. Uh, the, the listenership goes up every week. I, I really can't tell you how much it means that this project I, I started kind of on a lark because I was losing my mind in quarantine is uh, is sort of taking off. And I, uh, I really appreciate that creators like you, Darcy, have taken time out of their busy schedule to come and talk to me about the characters that have meant so much to them and to all of us over the years. Oh, and happy Indigenous Peoples Day, which will be yesterday when you're listening to this, which is a complete coincidence, but seemed pleasing to me when (laughs) I realized it. So hooray. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Like, I don't know, like, more states should recognize that. Fuck <laughs> Columbus. Anyway, until next time, everybody, thank you for listening, and bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, people mutants, led by Magneto, aim to destroy the world.